we do live in a culture that is inundated with what many have labeled a victim mentality. A victim mentality is when difficulties in life happen, and the very first automatic response is to find anyone else to blame. Now, that doesn't mean that true instances of victimization don't exist. Certainly, a victim of child abuse or financial fraud or violent crime or debilitating disease um, wouldn't be accused of having a victim mentality. They truly are victims of circumstances beyond their control, and we understand that. But even true victims have a choice as to how to respond to what's happened to them. They can either respond graciously or they can respond sinfully. Those are the two options that we have. And for the believer in Jesus Christ, the one who believes and understands God's sovereign control over everything, over all things, that God is in charge of every circumstance and every, circum- every situation, for us as followers of Christ, we understand that even situations that from a human standpoint we have been victimized, those also fall under the purview of the sovereignty of God. In his lament over the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C., the prophet Jeremiah, he made a theological statement about the sovereignty of God when he said this in Lamentations 3, 37 and 38. He said, Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? That's a phenomenal statement of the sovereignty of God. A couple of years ago in our series, Strength in the River, which was kind of part one of what we're doing here in Strength in the Desert, we did a detailed study of how Jeremiah responded spiritually to the destruction of Jerusalem, which had been brought on by Judah's covenant disloyalty to God. And what we found was that Jeremiah humbly submitted to the will of God. He was a humble servant of God who submitted to whatever God would do. And in fact, Jeremiah's hope is the very same In that very same chapter of Lamentations, he says, quote, The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. And then earlier in the chapter, he says that the covenant love and the covenant mercies of God, they never cease. And so his understanding that all the good and all the terrible things that come into our lives all come from God's sovereign will is balanced by his understanding that it is good to wait for the Lord because he's good to those who wait. And so last week we began our quest to build what we might call a biographical theology of how to wait on the Lord, what we can learn from individuals and groups in the Bible who've had to wait on the Lord, a time when it seems that God is not answering prayer, when he's gone radio silent, when he's not responding in the way that we think he should, when you are, spiritually speaking, in a desert, so to speak, And having strength in that desert, we found last week, is a choice. It's a decision to take the spiritual resources that God has made available to you and to avail yourselves of those resources. It's a choice. And last week, we painted a picture of some of the surviving wilderness wanderers of Israel coming into your living room and sitting down to maybe share with you what they've learned. And they they gave us the lesson, be grateful for God's mercies that in the midst of a time where it seems as if God is silent while you're waiting on that thing that you feel like you must have at all costs, God is still actually raining down mercies and kindnesses on you each and every day. But these Israelites, many of them who were teenagers when God disciplined Israel with 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, now they're AARP members before they ever get to see their new home. They're still sitting in your living room because they have another lesson 
They have something else to share, one which helps us avoid the spiritual trap of victimizing ourselves, of becoming victims, of betraying God in the midst of our time of waiting. And so tonight, our lesson is the fact that Israel also says, be wary of testing God. Be wary of testing God in your time of waiting. And to help us consider this lesson, turn with me to Psalm 106. Psalm 106, and as you're turning, let me remind you that when God made Israel wait those, th- those 40 years, it was 38 years of discipline after two years of preparation. He had a spiritual purpose in mind for them. He had a reason. It was the 11th month of the 40th year as Israel is camped on the plains of Moab across from the Promised Land. When Moses recounts the story of the 40 years of wandering, he gives a behind-the-scenes explanation of the divine purposes of God. He says in Deuteronomy chapter 8, and this is Moses preaching in the 11th month of the 40th year, beginning in verse 2, he says, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And so God was, as is his prerogative, testing each and every one of the citizens of Israel to see who has true faith and who doesn't. And instead of humbly letting the Lord teach them to trust him, we're going to see that they essentially tried to turn the tables on God. They tested him. They did the opposite. Deuteronomy 6, verse 16, Moses commanded the people, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And to that generation who had just been through 40 years of what happens when you do that, they understood that. Now, what does it mean to test God? Well, it means exactly what it sounds like. It it means to give God an examination to see if he is up to your standards. Did you catch that? I'm, I'm scared to even just say that out loud. But that's honestly what testing the Lord is. In the book of Job, which is the story of God's sovereignty in the midst of suffering, Job, the suffering servant of God, he makes the mistake of of intimating that perhaps God has poured suffering out on the wrong guy. Job's final words in, in the book, chapter 31, consists of this long litany of the good things that Job has done in his desire to please God, implying kind of a, a why me? Now, make no mistake, Job's description of his righteous life was accurate. He was representing himself correctly, but it seems like he assumed that if someone lives righteously before the Lord, he has a better chance of being exempt from suffering. Now, certainly we want to understand that a person who attempts to live wisely, according to the book of Proverbs, will have, generally speaking, a better life because they don't inflict suffering on themselves. But that doesn't exempt the believer, even the righteous believer, from having suffering brought to him. God never indicts Job for living an unrighteous life. He never says that you're living an unrighteous life. The Job's implication that maybe God got the wrong guy, God took this as a test. And beginning in chapter 38 of Job, God cross-examined Job like no one has ever experienced before. God says something that is very telling about how God feels about being tested. 
Job 40, verses 1 and 2, And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. And here's the telling statement. In verse 6 of chapter 40, God continues by speaking to Job, quote, Out of the whirlwind, literally out of a storm. When God visits you in a storm, you're in trouble. And he continues to give Job a giant, Who do you think you are? for testing me. And so Psalm 106 revisits what God thinks of being tested. And it specifically references some of the instances of Israel's rebellion in the wilderness, which we looked at last week. Now, we'll be examining verses 13 through 15 in particular, but I think these verses are best understood in the bigger context of the entire psalm. The book of Psalms is divided into five books within the book, and book four of the five is closed with Psalm 106. It's a reflection on the fact that humanity tends, generally speaking, to rebel against God despite overwhelming evidence of God's glory and his power. Now, there's an interesting comparison we could make. Psalm 105, the previous psalm, is this pure and joyful remembrance of God's grace to Israel to rescue her from Egypt. Psalm 106 talks about the same exact event, the same time, but with an emphasis on the sins of Israel and how after the exodus, even in the midst of God's glorious works among them, Israel failed time and time and time again. And Psalm 106 is like a credit report that you don't want anybody to find out about. The, the psalm is a hymn of praise, and it starts off so, so positively, but it quickly takes on the function of acting as a warning. And the psalm laments the disgrace, the tragedy of sin, and it's meant to bring about humility, repentance, and, and a general sort of come-back-to-reality understanding. It's likely written during the exile or perhaps shortly thereafter to the generation of Israelites who are now very, very well acquainted with the consequences of not trusting, not believing the Lord. And so I want to just set the context to this. In, in verses 1 through 5, you have this glorious introduction to the very lengthy psalm of 48 verses, and it sounds like we're in for a positive, uplifting time of worship. Verse 1 says, Praise the Lord, O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or declare all his praise? But then it gets brutally honest about how God was mistreated by Israel in covenant treachery and disloyalty. And the bulk of the psalm now recalls three time periods of God's grace to Israel. The first time period speaks of the actual exodus from Egypt, beginning in verse 6. Both we and our fathers have sinned. Remember, this is written during the exile, and so he's relating to the past generations that sinned. Both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. The Jews in exile made the same mistake that the first generation coming out of Egypt made. They sinned against God. How did they do this? Verse 7 says they didn't believe God was any more powerful than the Egyptians or the Egyptian gods. They panicked at the Red Sea. And then in verses 8 through 12, in spite of their unbelief, God still saved them. God still was gracious to them, bringing them miraculously through the Red Sea and destroying Pharaoh's army. And then the bulk of the psalm from verses 13 to 33 speaks of a second time period of God's grace. And this is the 40-year wandering in the wilderness, 38 years in judgment, two years in preparation. We considered this time period last week, and we're going to revisit that tonight. 
And this also is divided into some sections. Verses 13 through 15 is the text we're considering tonight. I'll come back to that. Verses 16 through 18 recalls the rebellion of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram and the 250 chiefs of Israel and how earth and fire was used by God to execute those rebels in Numbers 16. And then from verses 19 to 23, we go all the way back to Mount Sinai, also known as Horeb or Mount Horeb, in which the people were commanded to make no graven image, and they made a golden calf. They exchanged the glory of God for a stupid metal bovine in Exodus 32. And then in verses 24 through 27, we see the fear and refusal to take the land as recorded in Numbers 13 and 14, or as Psalms scholar Dr. George Zimmick puts it in eloquent theological terms, quote, the episode of being chicken about taking the promised land. And then in verses 28 through 31, we recount the incident right at the very end of the 40 years when Israel began engaging in sexual immorality and idolatry with the women of Moab, as recorded in Numbers 25, and then finally in verses 32 through 33, recalls the incident of the rebellion of the people when there was no water, and Moses striking the rock in anger, bringing discipline and recrimination on himself and on Aaron, his brother, in Numbers 20. And then we get to a third time period, and that is from the conquest itself all the way to Canaan, all the way to the exile. And this is recorded in verses 34 through 46. They were charged by God to completely destroy the Canaanite people. Why is this? Because God intended for them to have no negative influences within the nation itself. They didn't finish the job. And as a result, Canaanite idolatry almost immediately began to take a foothold in Israel. And lest you think, wow, isn't that cruel of the Lord to use Israel as an instrument of justice on the Canaanites? Look what happened as a result of their disobedience. Their disobedience led them to murder their own children. How did that come about? Look with me at verse 34. They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts and played the whore in their deeds. And so finally, after nine centuries of rebellion, of punishment, of repentance, rebellion, punishment, repentance, rebellion, punishment, repentance. This repeats countless times. God finally ended the national presence of Israel for the time being. The nation first split into two, and then shortly thereafter, the Assyrians, followed by the Babylonians, either slaughtered or captured the Israelites. But God is a covenant-keeping God, and in verse 44, we see, nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake, he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. He caused them to be pitied by all those who held them captive. And then the psalm concludes with a final plea for God to return them someday, looking forward to a day when a saved Israel exists and when all people love and serve God wholeheartedly. Verse 47, save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And let all the people say, Amen. 
Praise the Lord. But we want to get a close-up of these three verses, verses 13 through 15, which really gives an evaluation of what Israel did specifically when they complained in Numbers chapter 11. And before we read this evaluation, I think we need to be reminded of the incident that happened in Numbers 11. And so you don't have to turn there. Just listen as I read. It it reads like a story, since it is a story. Numbers 11, beginning in verse 1, And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. Remember that word, by the way. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Taberah, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the garlics, or the onion and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. And then in verse 18, Say to the people, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow and you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, Who will give us meat to eat? For it was better for us in Egypt. Therefore the Lord will give you meat and you shall eat. You shall not not eat just one day or two days or five days or ten days or twenty days, but a whole month until it comes out at your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before him, saying, Why did we come out of Egypt? And then verse 31, Then the wind from the Lord sprang up and it brought quail from the sea and let them fall beside the camp about a day's journey on this side and a day's journey on the other side around the camp and about two cubits above the ground. And the people rose all that day and all night and all the next day and gathered the quail. Those who gathered least gathered ten homers, and they spread them out for themselves around the camp. While the meat was yet between their teeth, before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord struck down the people with a very great plague. Therefore the name of that place was called Kibroth Hata'ava. Because there they buried the people who had the craving. Kibroth Hata'ava means the graves of those who crave. The graves of the craving. Now, what is the divinely inspired evaluation? What would the survivors of the wilderness wandering, if they're seated in your living room, what would they say using Psalm 106? What would they warn? Well, let's read the evaluation. Psalm 106, verse 13. Follow along with me, if you will. But they soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel. But they had a wanton craving in the wilderness and put God to the test in the desert. He gave them what they asked, but sent a wasting disease among them. Well, the Lord has all of his children, all those who have come to faith in Christ, have been forgiven of their sins. All of his children are waiting on him for something. Every one of us are. And we could make a sample list, but since all of you are waiting on something, you can make your own list. It's already coming to your mind. Some of you are waiting for the salvation of a family member. Some of you are waiting for marriage or for children. Some of you are waiting for your spouse to have that fantasy aha moment in which suddenly 10 years of spiritual maturity happens overnight. 
Some of you are waiting for a child to seek the Lord. Some of you are waiting for a parent to seek the Lord. Some of you are waiting for better health. I mean, we could just simply take a poll and the list would be huge. And what's very difficult is that some things that we're waiting on simply will not happen in this lifetime. I'm waiting to have another conversation with my father. That since he passed away in 2005, I will wait beyond this life for that moment. And so the wait that we experience can be one of the greatest challenges ever because the Lord is forcing you to experience delayed gratification, and you don't have a choice. There are no credit cards to get you out of certain areas of waiting in your life. You can't just decide to not experience that delayed gratification. We don't have control over what it is that we wait upon, but we do have control over how we wait. And Israel, looking back on her overall response, I think she would say that she sinned with three attitudes that tested the Lord. Three attitudes that tested the Lord. Now, before we even start, I want you to understand that there's a battle going on during your time of waiting. That's why it's so hard. If it wasn't a battle, it wouldn't be difficult. But that battlefield is entirely in your own heart and in your own mind. It doesn't take place anywhere else. It's only in yourself, in your heart and in your mind. That's the battlefield. And so we have to address attitudes. We have to address internal thinking. Three attitudes Israel had which tested the Lord. First, they were disgruntled. Second, they were discontented. And third, they were dissatisfied. They were disgruntled, discontented, and dissatisfied. The first attitude Israel had was tested the Lord. They were disgruntled. Now, this is a word we really only hear in the news. It's often used to explain someone's harsh or even violent actions, and the one we we think of is a disgruntled employee or a disgruntled customer. A, A disgruntled person is someone who's bitter and unhappy and only has negative commentary about a particular circumstance, and it's used primarily in reference to how a person has felt badly in response to one particular situation. In other words, we don't wake up and say, I woke up disgruntled for no particular reason today. That's not how we use that word. And the disgruntled person generally suffers from tunnel vision, suffers from lack of perspective. The classic disgruntled employee doesn't remember the regular paychecks, the kindness of the employer to hire him in the first place, all the good that came his way as a result of that job, There is tunnel vision with a skewed and 100% negative attitude. And in this case, the Israelites got this tunnel vision. And they judged their current situation as lacking. And that's what being disgruntled is, is judging your current situation as lacking. Verse 13, look at this first phrase with me. This is so sad. But they soon forgot his works. They soon forgot his works. Now, that doesn't mean that they literally didn't remember the ten plagues that God brought on Egypt or the Red Sea or the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. It doesn't mean that they suddenly didn't remember those things. It means that they made a conscious decision to quit considering them, to quit remembering them, that God's power and faithfulness in the past now would have no bearing on how they would trust him at this moment. Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers in the 19th century in England, he said, quote, They seemed to be in a hurry to get the Lord's mercies out of their memories. They hasted, it means hurried, to be ungrateful. 
And what a sad contrast to how they had begun. After God covered the Egyptian army with the waters of the Red Sea, look at verse 12. Then they believed his words. They sang his praise. And so instead of being grateful for the Lord's mercies, they complain. They grumble. Numbers 11, verse 1 says, The people complained in the hearing of the Lord. And here's the word I ask you to remember about their misfortunes. Now, this is an interesting word. It's used 347 times in the Old Testament. It's a very common Hebrew word. But this is the only time that the English Standard Version, for example, chose to translate it misfortune. Let me tell you how it's usually translated the other 346 times. Evil, harm, trouble, wickedness. In other words, Israel isn't just saying, oh, look, we have a rock in our sandals. How misfortunate. They are accusing God of bringing evil to them, of bringing wickedness to them. God has brought evil upon us. And no wonder when God heard it, his anger was kindled and he burned and consumed the outer parts of the camp as if God were saying, if I wanted to bring evil on you, you would know it. Trust me. And he gives them a little sample. Now, what precisely was this horrible evil that they blamed God for? They were eating the manna that God provided, and they wanted something better. That's it. That was it. That was the great evil. Now, we could make the case that the complaints of Numbers 11, 1 through 4 are different than the complaint about the food. But even then, if you just look back at the previous chapters, God had brought nothing bad to them at all. The only people in actual misery were those who rebelled against God. They were the only miserable ones. It was all in their heads. And listen to the spiritual trap they fell into. Oh, if only. How many times in my counseling office has somebody started a sentence with, Oh, if only. And I already know we're going down the road of idolatry. Oh, if only we had meat to eat, then we would be happy. We're not talking about the normal expected emotional reaction to tragedy. This was not a human response to grief and loss. This was nothing but judging that God wasn't moving fast enough, that God wasn't doing what you think he should be doing. My health should be better by now. My husband should be godlier by now. I should have more money by now. I deserve better than what I have right now. I shouldn't have to suffer like this. I should have this. I should have that. I should have more friends. I should have fewer friends. I should have whatever it is I want. The disgruntled spouse can never be pleased. The disgruntled church member can never be pleased. The disgruntled suffering believer listens to no counsel and suffers not only normal depression associated with suffering, but self-inflicted depression as well. The, the suffering, the disgruntled waiting believer looks only to this fantasy future, if only, without seeing the value in what is happening this very day, the value in waiting on the Lord. The counsel I give to those who are waiting on the Lord is don't disappoint yourself by being impatient until the moment God answers your prayer, because to look back on your time of waiting and to realize that you were just impatient, you were being a big baby, you weren't waiting on him, you weren't trusting him, you were just having a giant fit the whole time, that A, is disappointing to yourself, and B, a good way for the Lord to make you wait again to see if you get it right the second time. Joy has been abandoned, and now it's replaced by self-pity and ingratitude. And could I say this in all love, to be careful, 
to be careful that in your time of waiting, don't think that God is going to see you as a victim because he's, he's not. It may be that God is using this time to help strip you of that very sense of entitlement that you have and to let it be okay. And you are taking your life into your own hands if you choose, even in the secret, unseen places of your heart, to believe that you deserve better. This is an attack on God and nothing more. Well, there's a second attitude Israel had which tested the Lord. They were discontented. They were discontented. And we're going to start to build kind of a, a composite definition here. If being disgruntled is judging the current situation is lacking, then being discontented could be defined as judging the wisdom of God as lacking. Being discontented is judging the wisdom of God as lacking. Now, by logical definition, every person who believes with all of his heart that every plan, every word, every decree, every declaration of God is always perfect, always right, always beautiful, always appropriate, always righteous, always just, that person is the model of contentment because they've taken the sovereignty of God and begun to live it and to believe it. But it is possible to stand in judgment over the wisdom of God, over his plan and his work in our lives, and this is precisely what Israel did. Verse 13 says, Not only did they soon forget the works of God, they did not wait for his counsel. They did not wait for his counsel. And what was the counsel of the Lord in this case? The counsel of the Lord was God's intention to provide them miraculously with manna. We've already seen in Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, that God intended this for a very spiritually nourishing purpose for them, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. The people were discontent with the manna. Not just a case of wanting some variety in their food. I'm sure they had some salt and pepper or something they could put on it. Their discontentment was aimed at the very core of God's plan itself. They were not just discontent with the food. They were discontent with the God who gave the food. And this had already been their pattern. Exodus 15 records that just three days after the Red Sea crossing, they went three days, found no water in the wilderness. Considering that Moses was leading upwards of three million people, this was a legitimately significant issue. But certainly not insurmountable for the God who had just controlled the waters of the Red Sea and they came to Mara, and it was named Mara later because of the name. It means bitterness. And they found water, but it was undrinkable. It was bitter, and thus the name Mara. And so what do you think God wanted them to do? I think it's very simple. He wanted them to have faith. He wanted them to say, hey, just three days ago, God made a wall of water. Let's just ask him to make this drinkable. No big deal. Instead, Exodus 15, 24, the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And God showed them how easily he could have provided for them. Verse 25 of Exodus 15 says that God had Moses throw a log in the water, and it became pure and sweet. That's all it would have taken is for God to fix it. And what was God's lesson to them? And this is the connection. Immediately following there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments. 
Then God would keep them from calamity. The, the point is, he wanted the people to learn to trust his word, to trust his plan, to trust his solutions. That it wasn't an accident that they came to a pool of bitter water. That was exactly his plan. If God's plan is to be backed up against the Red Sea in a seemingly hopeless situation, then trust his word. If God's plan is to finally come to water, but it's bitter and undrinkable, then trust his word. And yes, if it's God's plan to graciously provide a humble but tasty bread-like substance called manna, then trust his word. Trust him. Instead, they thought their own wisdom was better. They intended to shortcut the Lord's counsel, his ordained solution, his plan, Psalm 119 gives an example of a much different attitude toward God's word, toward his plans. You don't have to turn there, but just listen. Psalm 119, verse 20 says, My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all time. And this is an interesting word because we don't have an exact parallel in English. The word rules in Hebrew means your judgments, your decrees, everything you decide. This isn't just a longing for the written word of God, although that is the starting point. It expresses more of a longing for going along with whatever God decides. Do you catch that? A longing for it. Not just a, well, I guess I'll have to obey the will of God. <sighs> Thy will be done. That's lame. No, it's, I long to do whatever your plan is. If your plan is for me to go through this horrible trial, I yearn for that. I long for it. In Psalm 119, we see a continual theme of not just an intellectual admiration for the word of God, but a, a yearning, a longing, a hungering, a, a thirsting after to live according to all that the Lord commands and all that the Lord decrees. He says in verse 30, I have chosen the way of faithfulness. Verse 32, I will run in the way of your commandments. Verse 35, lead me in the path of your commandments. Verse 59, when I think on my ways, I turn my feet, meaning metaphorically where I walk, to the paths to your testimonies. I take great joy in finding out what God's will is and following it, no matter what, all the way to the end. And in fact, listen to the psalmist's attitude, even when God's decree, even when his plan is to afflict him with suffering. Psalm 119, verse 71, it is good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. In other words, my suffering drove me to your word, drove me to your plan, reminded me that your plan is always right. It kept me in my place. It made me think on your ways instead of on my ignorant ways. What an attitude to say it was good for me that I was afflicted. And for Israel, whose gracious God is literally raining food down on them every day, they became discontent with not just the food, but with God himself, and they decided they knew better. And I think it's important that we note that this is not a case of the people humbly asking God with a thankful heart for a little variety in their food. They're not saying, oh, Lord, thank you for your kindness and provision, and if in your infinite wisdom you might see fit to provide one more special meal, that would be very nice, but we are content with whatever you choose to give, and we receive the manna with thanks. That's not what they're doing. This is just outright rebellion and ingratitude. This is, God, we hate what you're doing. 
Your plan is wrong. We looked to Spurgeon once again for insight. He commented, With God is counsel and strength. But we are vain enough to look for these ourselves, and therefore we grievously err. There's a third attitude Israel had, which tested the Lord. They were dissatisfied. They were dissatisfied. And let's kind of finish building our our composite definition here. If being disgruntled is judging the current situation is lacking, and being discontented is judging the wisdom of God as lacking, then being dissatisfied could be defined as judging the character of God himself as lacking. The character of God himself is lacking. What a slippery spiritual slope. And it began with one thing, complaining. It began with complaining. They go from judging the situation is lacking to judging God's wisdom is lacking to judging God himself as lacking. Verse 15. He gave them what they asked. And what was it they asked for? In verse 14, they had a wanton craving in the wilderness and put God to the test in the desert. This Hebrew verb translated had a wanton craving. It's an important, it's a significant verb form in Hebrew, which indicates that this verb is keeping the action going in the narrative. That this is the core, this is the center, this is what we really look at. This is the key issue. And that same exact verb form is immediately used following to summarize what Israel was really doing. They put God to the test in the desert. Now, why is this the core? Why is this the key issue? It's not that their desire to eat meat was inherently wrong. This is not a victory for vegans everywhere. It's that this desire was a wanton craving. It was completely selfish and not considering at all that the manna was what God had planned. It was a judgment against God, not just against his meal plan. And let me put it to you in terms I think that we could relate to. It's like a married man who knows full well that his wonderful wife has been preparing a meal for that evening. And she's been working hard and she's been excited about it. She's been chopping the vegetables and preparing the meat and getting this wonderful meal ready But he decides on the spur of the moment that he's in the mood for something else. And so he brings home a bag of horrible fast food, plops it down on the table, and tells his wife, your cooking stinks. I brought my own food home. Now, why is that so horrifying to us? Because it's no longer about food. The man is not saying, I wish I had different food. He's saying, I wish I had a different wife. You see how serious that is? And Israel is essentially saying, we wish we had a different God. We look to Spurgeon again, who commented, the desire of theirs, they dwelt upon it until it became a mania with them and like a wild horse carried away its rider. Could I warn you to be careful about about creating and cultivating that fantasy ideal that will make you happy? It will carry you into heinous sin. And it carried Israel right into apostasy. And if you don't believe it's that bad, we only have to look a couple of chapters beyond Numbers 11 to Numbers 13 and 14 when Israel believed the cowardly words of 10 of the spies sent to Canaan. Listen to these words from Numbers 14. 
after hearing the words of the ten cowardly spies, then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And remember, we're, we're just days and months from having been at the Red Sea and seeing a wall of water hundreds of feet high and walking through it on dry ground, turning around and watching the wall come down and decimate the largest army on the planet. And here they complain. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we have died in the land of Egypt, or that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. What is it that they're doing? Listen, this is not just complaint about food. This is not just complaint about a situation. They are rebuffing God's entire plan of salvation for them, which includes suffering. One writer confirms, quote, By this time they actually propose returning to Egypt, thereby rejecting the whole plan of redemption. From Exodus 1 to the mission of the spies is but one plot. How Israel was brought out of Egypt to the borders of Canaan, now within sight of their goal, they suggest giving it all up. So when Israel had a wanton craving in which they judged God as lacking, God did what God is at times prone to do. He gave them what they asked for. Now, this is not answered prayer per se. This is God letting them reap the natural consequences of their wanton craving. He used what they demanded as the instrument of his discipline. And in fact, we can safely say, and this is an important point to make, we can safely say that this was the instrument of his wrath on the unbelievers of Israel. Now, how can we say this? I'll give you three reasons. First of all, the use of the wanton craving as the instrument of punishment on the unbeliever is attested to in a very major way in Romans chapter 1. The Apostle Paul, speaking of the improper and immoral homosexual sex acts, he says in verse 24, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And in verse 26, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And so there is a precedent. Second reason, this is God's wrath on the unbelievers among Israel. In Numbers 11, the account that I read to you, those who were leading the others astray, verse 4 says, quote, the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. Who are the rabble? It's a word that means the vagabonds, the clingers on. Who are these people? These are non-Israelite slaves who saw an opportunity to escape slavery along with Israel. Hey, three million of you walking out of here free, they won't mind 20 or 30,000 more. This group of non-Israelite slaves attached themselves to escaping Israel, seizing the opportunity to leave Egypt. And so what did Israel do? They allowed those with no connection, no obligation to the God of Israel to try to ride the coattails of God's protection of Israel. But what happened, as always happens when you let unbelievers in among God's elect, they proved to be a bad influence. And it wasn't just them that God judged with death from the quail. They misled many in Israel. And the third reason we can say this is God's wrath on the unbeliever, we see in Psalm 78... Because he treats them with wrath. Psalm 78 retells the story of God bringing the quail 
how he, quote, rained meat on them like dust in verse 28. And the result is, in verse 29, they ate and were well filled, for he gave them what they craved. But before they had satisfied their craving, while the food was still in their mouths, the anger of God rose against them, and he killed the strongest of them and laid low the young men of Israel. The, the rabble came, they influenced Israel, and God exposed who was true and who wasn't. Dr. Eugene Merrill, arguably one of the greatest Old Testament scholars in church history, writes this, quote, Their sin was, in effect, a rejection of the Lord and his bountiful provision in favor of an unbridled appetite. As Paul later in Philippians 3.19 said of the enemies of Christ, their God is their stomach. Same thing. So now we're not just talking about having some kind of bad attitude while a believer is waiting on the Lord. We're talking about going from judging the current situation as lacking to judging the wisdom of God as lacking to judging God himself as lacking. And oh, how many of them fail God's test. And the test is the same for us as Christians. It's exactly the same. God brings suffering and waiting into our lives to test the validity of our faith. Romans 8, verses 16 and 17, familiar passage to us. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And everybody wants to stop right there. But the sentence doesn't stop there. It keeps going. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. That when we wait, when we suffer, we will stay with Christ all the way. And it doesn't matter how long that takes. The Apostle Peter said that our time of suffering is precious to us because it confirms the legitimacy of our faith in Christ. He said in 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, in this, he's speaking of the coming in uh, heavenly inheritance in verse 4, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Why do we rejoice? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There is such joy, such satisfaction in finding out that no matter how long God waits, asks you to wait for anything, you'll see it through to the end. What a joy to look in the mirror and say, I've been waiting three years. I've been waiting five years. I've been waiting 10 years for this or that. And my faith in the Lord is stronger than ever. Oh, that's such a relief. That's such a giant sigh of, I'm going to heaven because my suffering has proven my faith. You would never know that if the Lord didn't make you wait on something. You would never know it. As a matter of fact, the whole prosperity gospel is in effect a pushback against waiting on the Lord. Why should you wait on the Lord? Get everything you want from him right now. And so as you wait, it should be with rejoicing that your determination is to not be disgruntled, not be discontented, and not be dissatisfied because it proves that you are, in fact, a child of the living God. And there, there is such joy in that. So what do you do instead? Well, you do the opposite. Now, contrary to some English opinions, the opposite of being disgruntled is not to be gruntled. Some have tried, beginning in the late 19th century, to make that a word. It's not a word. 
In some cases, the D-I-S prefix doesn't indicate the opposite of something, but it acts as an intensifier. Gruntle, it's a, from a root word that means a grumbler. And so to be disgruntled, seeing the D-I-S prefix as an intensifier, to be disgruntled is to be a big-time grumbler. You are a complainer. Every time your mouth opens, everybody around you goes, oh, here we go again. You are disgruntled. And so the opposite of being disgruntled to complain is to be thankful. By the way, we're going to hear the theme of thankfulness and gratitude all through Strength in the Desert. To remember that James said that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So the opposite of being disgruntled is to be thankful. The opposite of being discontented, well, that one's easy, is to be content. To join the Apostle Paul in honestly, from the depths of your heart, being able to say from Philippians 4.12, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In every, any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. The Apostle Paul learned how to objectively remove himself from himself and just look on almost with curiosity. Isn't that interesting? I'm in my 27th shipwreck now. Isn't that interesting? There's a snake hanging onto my arm and I think I'm going to die. Funny. Isn't that interesting that they're throwing rocks at me and I think I'm about to perish? Isn't that interesting? I find myself in a basket being lowered from a wall. It's just this sense of detachment, of just kind of watching, like it just a Netflix show. Wow, my life's really going badly. Isn't that funny? That's contentment. To just watch and just see what the Lord does. The opposite of being dissatisfied is to be satisfied. To be filled up with God, to be satisfied and gratified and satiated with God himself to join King David, who also got thirsty, who also got hungry in the desert. Psalm 63 begins, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Oh God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. In other words, he has need, and he's waiting on the Lord. And how does he respond to this need? Does he say, oh, I'm so disgruntled. I wish I had something else. I'm so discontent. I wish God's wisdom would be better. I'm so dissatisfied. I wish God was better. No. Psalm 63, beginning in verse 5, he says, My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help. In the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Oh, that's peace. That's peace. He's out in the desert. And he closes his eyes, as it were, and says, Oh, my soul is satisfied as if I just had a rich meal. I'm satisfied. Instead of having the attitude of being disgruntled, discontent, and dissatisfied, make a different choice. Be thankful, be content, be satisfied. Now, I I could end here, but I, I have to mention this is so close and so important as it touches on an important spiritual issue, really a great spiritual issue. And that is the fact that to one degree or another, all human beings will always fall prey to these sinful attitudes. That's our problem, our sin nature. 
And so God is angered at sin, and we needed a representative to stand in our place who never succumbed to these temptations. We needed someone to put his life forward instead of ours. And, of course, that someone is the living and eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ. But what I want to point out, and this is so important, how, how Scripture works together. Jesus Christ proved that he is that someone. Did you know there was a moment when he gave us proof that he is the one who can stand for us? He was led by the Spirit of God into the desert, into the wilderness, to prove to all people that he is the sinless and perfect Son of God, very God. And he went to be tempted. And the first thing Satan tempted Jesus with, after Jesus had fasted for 40 days straight, the first thing he was tempted with was delicious food. And in his humanity, Matthew 4, verse 2 says that Jesus was hungry. He didn't just zap himself unhungry. And Matthew 4, verse 3 says, And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And he tempted Jesus. And Jesus answered, quoting Deuteronomy 8, 3, and you can already say it. It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The lesson that God wanted to teach Israel, Jesus already knew. Satan then tempted Jesus to throw himself down from the temple to prove that God would rescue him. Jesus answered, quoting Deuteronomy 6.16, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Satan tested Jesus one more time with immediate power over all the kingdoms of the world that he could skip the cross, skip all of the suffering, and all you have to do is bow down to me and then I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. And Jesus again answered from Deuteronomy You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. The very lessons that God desired Israel to learn in which they failed, Jesus passed with flying colors. Only he did it with one hand tied behind his back. Israel was having three meals a day, rained down on them from God, and they wanted more. Jesus went 40 days without food and was tempted by the most powerful being in the universe other than God himself. And Jesus fought him off with his knowledge of the book of Deuteronomy. Jesus is the only substitute, the only representative who can speak for you before God because he alone has never been disgruntled, never been discontent, and never been dissatisfied. He is always satisfied with what his Father gives him, even to the cross always satisfied. And if you are in Christ, having repented of your sins and received Christ's payment for sin on the cross, he is your mediator, he is your representative, and he is your savior. And he can give you all that you need to wait on the Lord. Because he loves you and because he has paved the way for you, you will never wait on anything that is harder to wait upon than Christ has had to wait. You will never suffer anything that was greater than what he had to suffer. And so you have a spiritual oldest brother who has been there first and made it okay. So don't be disgruntled. Don't be discontent. Don't be dissatisfied. Instead, be thankful, be content, and be satisfied. Amen? Our Father, we thank you for this evening. Thank you for your word, which is so instructive to us. And Lord, it's always a joy for me to preach a message when I know it applies to every single person listening. Because all of us are waiting for something. We're waiting for the salvation of a loved one. We're waiting for 
the sanctification of a loved one. We're waiting for our own sanctification. We're waiting and waiting and waiting. And the older we get, the more we realize that you will not necessarily neatly tie up all these loose ends in our lifetime. That we will close our eyes in death, having many questions unanswered. We want to join those saints of Hebrews chapter 11 who are applauded for the fact that they waited upon the Lord even beyond their own lifetimes. Might we join with them? Might we be as righteous and faithful as they are? Lord, for those here who are waiting for something particularly poignant, particularly painful, give them extra grace, give them extra mercy. But in the meantime, Lord, help them to be thankful and content and satisfied. And to receive from your hand all that you give, whether it's good or bad or nice or painful. To trust your word. To trust your plan. To trust your character. And let it be that which teaches them that they are in fact true children of the living God. Saved by the grace of Christ through the Holy Spirit. And for all these things we will give you thanks for your faithfulness, for your grace, and for your kindness. In Jesus' name, amen.